2: Welcome to the Q&A, everyone. Um, I guess we have a lot of questions, don't we, today, Tom?
3: We do. We do. And uh, excellent questions. I want to thank everybody because this is what really keeps our topic alive and going. And when you ask a question, you're asking a question that possibly hundreds of other people may have, considering the number of people that listen to the show. Uh, I want to say thank you for the questions. And if you... If you like the show, let us know. Like and subscribe. It feeds the algorithm. And we don't know much about the algorithm. We just know that it's hungry and wants to be fed. (laughs) And if you you like to support the show, you can do that. We've got a link to Patreon. And that's another hungry algorithm beast. So with that said, we're going to jump right in. And I'm going to start off with two questions here. The first one is, this is from Danny in the Southern Sierras. Danny wants to know if a optical zoom is preferable, better quality than a digital zoom on a digital camera. And I'd say only by about 100%. Much better. (laughs) Uh, The digital zoom, uh, it's a great way to, you know, it's a cheap zoom. It'll pixelate things. If you want a good picture, go with the optical. So, uh, good question. Thanks, Danny. And Danny's got another question, and this is more directed for Will. Um, Will has said that Sasquatch tend to go up in elevation with the onset of winter. So, why would they do this? Are they following game? And if so, is this... Is this a pattern that the game would do? Is this something that the game would? Do they go into the higher elevations?
2: You know, the uh, the reasons they do it, of course, are unknown. We can't know unless we follow them around all the time, you know, and see what they're doing. But um, it is something they seem to do. Uh, now, whether it's just a preference, they prefer the colder weather or not, um you know, that's unknown. But one thing is they do stay above the game and uh whether the game animals are going up there or or not um you know they like to be above the game animals you know mostly it's because they want to stay upwind of them so um but they prefer the high ground and and staying above the game seems to make sense what do you think forrest
0: Well, I was just thinking about that. Um, Maybe by staying upwind of them, and they're not staying on the same level, um, if they were on the same level with them and the game was always smelling them um, or had the possibility of smelling them, it might drive them farther um, down into maybe populated areas where, uh, of course, Bigfoot wouldn't want to be having to go.
2: Yeah, I'm sure it's a very strategic reason. You know, of course, they don't want to spook the game out of an area too soon because once they know a major predator is in the area, they'll leave.
0: Well, it's kind of like when you're, you know, when hunting season comes, where do you find all the deer, the elk, and and, uh, um, not so much moose? Down
2: down uh, where you can't shoot them. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, down where you can't shoot them. I mean, they're not, you know, they may not be the brightest animals in the world, but they're not the stupidest either. So, uh, you know, they're going to go where um, you're not going to be able to get to them.
3: Exactly. And I've often wondered about How do they know? I mean, I, I'm, I'm positive they don't read the newspaper. I'm positive they don't read, uh, you know, the Internet. But somehow they know. And I've watched.
2: It's uncanny, isn't it?
3: It is so uncanny. I it's like know. within a
2: day of opening season, they're, yes. they're hanging around small towns that are out, in the, out in the, you know, wild areas and or people's homes. You know, they're they're where you wouldn't think they would be.
3: I have seen that time and again, time and again. I'll go up into the mountains, and it's the same. As far as I can tell, same number of people going up in the mountains. It's just different. You got backpackers hikers and campers and that doesn't seem to drive them down but i maybe it's the sound of the first rifle shot you're like oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) but i've I've often watched elk on an on an opposite ravine and depending on the time of day well you know i'm talking about in the morning when you get those thermals coming up they pick up your scent and Bam, they get up and they're on the move right now. Yeah. Very interesting. So they're, you know, I think we need to give animals a lot more credit for being intelligent or at least having some good instincts.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think when the Sasquatch are doing what they do, they're, um, you know, they're aware of what the animals are doing, you know, so they're going to adjust accordingly.
3: Oh yeah, and they're aware of what we're doing too. I think they're far more intelligent as far as you know. I, well, we can go on and on about this, but I mean, you can get uh, you can get very close to these creatures and have absolutely no clue that you're being spied on. Okay, um, here's a question from Desmond. He says, "Hey guys, uh, are there any reliable stories of hunters?" needing to shoot at Bigfoot due to a threatening behavior. And how did they escape or stop it? What kind of rifle is needed to stop these creatures given their size, etc.? Um, and then there's a second half, but we'll answer the first half first.
2: Okay. There are stories, plenty of stories of being shot. I I've interviewed people that have shot at them. Uh, one in particular during hunting season, and i've told this before i don't know why it's not a particular standout story it's just the one that comes to mind all the time because i i knew that area really well and the guy was uh deer hunting and i think he had a 30 out six saw the creature down this road and i think it was across the ravine it was kind of a switchback situation and he saw the creature at some you know a couple hundred yards away and he shot the thing uh he says he hit it in the right shoulder and and basically it just kept going it didn't just you know it, it left the scene it didn't take off running but it, it left quickly but uh it didn't go down and and he wasn't even sure why he shot it himself um, but there are
3: plenty of those cases well and there's a story that uh joe told us oh gosh year and a half ago a couple years ago about mm-hmm. a camp that he he and a friend of his found in the Oregon Cascades that was an abandoned camp and a lot of very expensive equipment left there but the place was littered he said the ground was just littered with uh 556 shell casings all over the place so um and that's way too small
2: around to be shooting at a Sasquatch with
3: oh way too small (laughs) and you gotta wonder what happened to the occupants of that camp
2: you know it's one of the things I always say is don't shoot at one if you should be able to, you know, they're they're going to give you signs that they don't want you in the area. Um, And and if you do encounter one that doesn't give one of the signs, like, you know, the lip flip or throwing something at you, things like that, um, just leave. Go back the way you came and, and leave because you don't want a situation to turn bad.
3: Absolutely. Okay, and the second half of this question is, uh, this Desmond wants to know if being seen with a gun is better than not having one encountering these creatures. In other words do they know what a gun is and would that be a deterrent?
2: Well, apparently they do. Uh, I know in my own first encounter I was holding a rifle and you know looking back, I didn't think about it at the moment because it was only a 22 but it was a rifle And, and I'm sure I think the creature was aware of what it was. Uh, because it didn't, it didn't make any moves. It didn't do anything, and I only I left quickly when the second creature came around after I shot in the air. So, um, I, I, what do you think, Forrest? I mean, and Milo join in too.
0: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think they're smart enough to recognize, uh, you know, the damage that rifles do. I mean, I know for a fact that you can, uh, you can pick up a rifle. And look through the scope, just u- just using it for the scope, because we've done it around here before, uh, at deer that are in the pasture. You know, we had a big buck that kept coming up here, and we were just looking at him through the the uh, the scope, uh, my daughter and me. And you know, <laughs> as soon as I brought that rifle up, uh, I mean, he saw us and was just watching us. And as soon as I brought that rifle up to look at him, and this is a freaking deer, and he was gone. So, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of animals recognize those as weapons of doom. So, um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily just something that Bigfoot do, but uh, of course a Bigfoot's going to have, uh, for far greater intelligence, a level of intelligence than a deer or a coyote or something like that, but all animals seem to recognize that if they've ever been shot at they seem to recognize that uh you know guns are guns are bad
2: yeah i would think if they saw you know a human killing a deer or something with with a rifle that would probably stick with them so if they saw that particular item again you know they would have some concept of what it does
3: yeah yeah okay Uh, And we know the question of this, this is the last part of the same question from Desmond. He says, also wondering if Bigfoot ever leaves fingerprints and how similar are those to humans or apes? Could fingerprints be useful in identifying species or individuals?
2: Well, the first part of that, do they leave fingerprints? That's yes, we actually have pictures of that, Um, uh, a number of them. But uh they're grubby
3: prints too what (laughs) they're grubby
2: prints the grubby prints yeah (laughs) but as far as usefulness i I had
3: them on my truck one time that's
2: right yours yours are one of them uh i have i have like i said i have a number of photos in my my files of these kind of markings so as far as usefulness yeah wouldn't do wouldn't do much good really because excuse me um you know, there's, there's no database for Bigfoot fingerprints, so you wouldn't be able to identify one. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's no CODIS base for them. Um, right. If 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 I might make a suggestion, um, if uh, this individual, Desmond, did you say was the person that asked the question? Uh, yes, there's Desmond. actually Okay, there's actually a man from, uh, and if I remember correctly, I think uh, Jimmy Chilkoff um, was... Uh, he is, was considered to be one of the foremost authorities on uh, fingerprinting. And he is from Texas, of course. And um, I think uh, actually down in the Houston area, Katie. Yeah, he possibly. was an FBI agent. Uh, was he an FBI agent as well? Okay. Um, but um, he actually got bored and decided he was going to see if uh, primates had the same uh, type of um, fingerprint pads as humans do and he has done the most extensive work on uh, I think there's not a primate known a man that he has not uh, <clears throat> printed and cataloged and you need to check his work out because actually uh, I know Jeff uh, Meldrum has uh, used him and when they have found uh, you know uh, pad prints, you know, or, or hand prints, and that they cast. And you can pull off things. They do have fingerprints, just like what we do. And they are exclusively, uh, just like, you know, an, an individual human, they are individual to the, uh, you know, that particular primate as well. And they're different from, uh, they're all, all different. So they're, uh, they have uh, each animal's fingerprint is exclusive to that particular animal. So you could, if you had a, a fingerprint, you know, system like CODIS, I guess we could enter them into. But unfortunately, uh, there aren't too many volunteer Bigfoot out there, uh, you know, ready ready to uh, uh, put their fingerprints in the system. So yeah, it's, yeah it's, um, <laughs> it's so so few
2: and far between. It really wouldn't wouldn't uh, be of much use, though.
0: Yeah. But you might look him up, and it, it, he actually, there, are, there is some stuff on uh, out there on the Internet that uh, <clears throat> explains a lot of his work. And it's quite interesting, actually.
3: All right. So next question is, uh, what signs do Bigfoot leave marking their territory? And what can people look for to better recognize these signs? I wonder if people are unwittingly missing these signs and wandering into areas that could easily, easily be avoided. And I think we know the answer to that.
2: Yeah, we've well, we we have answered this before a few times, but we'll you know because people don't uh, always listen to the show, we'll say it again. Typically, what they do is they'll you'll either see a ninety-degree break or the or the trunk of the tree is twisted. Uh, And it's something that people would just walk by because they would think it's, if they even looked at a tree like that, they would just think it was weather damage.
3: And I will say this. I ran into a tree trunk that I sent you a picture of four years ago, I think. And it was, I don't know, 20, 30 yards away. So I just took a close-up picture of it. And you said, go back and check the ground. (laughs) Oh, yeah, good idea. And it was absolutely everywhere there was these 14, 15-inch footprints all over the place. So that would be a dead giveaway.
4: Yeah. uh,
2: Yeah.
3: So that's, you know, that's an excellent question. So that's that's the main marking they do, though. Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, Got a question. This is from Mike. He wants to know. What could be the reason for the wheezing, rattling noise coming from what is presumed to be these creatures breathing when somebody's having an encounter?
2: Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've I've only heard people say that a couple of times. Most of the time, they don't. My own encounter close up, I didn't hear anything like that. Any thoughts, Forrest?
0: Did I understand that right? That they're they're hearing a rattling noise when they're
1: breathing?
3: You're kind of a uh, yeah. I've it's heard a a rasping or something. Yeah, a, a few raspy. times where oh, it's
1: okay.
0: kind yeah. of a and raspy,
3: like they've got yeah. bronchitis or something.
0: Yeah. Um, well, that's. I mean, that's not a normal sound that that other primates would make. And I would think that if I heard something like that, that it would be uh, an indication to me that there might be uh, some. Uh, you know, upper respiratory problems going on. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, primates are susceptible to a lot of the same diseases that we are. And I've wondered sometimes with all this COVID outbreak, uh, that, you know, and other things, I mean, uh, people going into the woods and possibly spreading types of respiratory problems, um, that maybe they contracted. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't have one to study, so I couldn't answer that question. But um, that would be my guess that that would be a re- upper respiratory problem. I wouldn't—that is not normal to hear, you know, uh, raspy, heavy breathing coming from any primate, and be just like with a person. It'd be an indication that there might be something uh, going on that is not right.
2: And especially since that's not the norm
3: with encounters.
0: Exactly. Right.
3: Okay, so here's a question. Um, obviously, we know that Sasquatch can move about really good at night, uh, and uh, this guy says, "In my opinion, I would say that with all the reports of them having orange and red glowing eyes, maybe it's an adaptation over thousands of years, uh, some sort of evolutionary process that so that they've developed some sort of night vision." Um, what are your thoughts on this? Will, and Forrest.
0: Um, I can take that. Sure. <laughs> okay. You know, humans gave up night vision uh, so that we could detect more colors. Uh, that's the same with most primates. Now, there are some primates, your lemurs, uh, your, uh, your prosimians, and the lower orders. <clears throat> it's only in the lower orders of uh, simians um and they do you know i go back to the uh lucidum which is that's that reflective uh, material in your eyes or in the eyes of mammals that causes their eyes to be reflective when they're hit with a, a light um primates don't possess that humans don't possess that when you see uh when you see a red eye, you know people say, "Oh, well, you know people have red eyes, and uh we you know we you see that in photographs and stuff. well, that's true, but what's happening is that uh that's the the blood the blood in the back of the eye is actually picking up the lo- the light that's what it's hitting, and it's seeing all those blood vessels in the back of the eye, and that's why you get the red eye in pictures. It's not because that uh people have suddenly acquired um you know uh, tapetum lucidum in their eyes but I suspect, with a lot of the different, you know, I've I've said over and over that Bigfoot seems to be a bit of an enigma because they they seem to have retained some primitive features, like the mid-torsal break in the foot, and yet they still have an inline toe. Why couldn't they have, on the same token, retained uh, this tapetum lucidum in their eyes uh, so that that would make them um uh, more likely to be hunting at night and more nocturnal um and, and that's not to say i don't think that because people see them at it during the day i think i've seen them out during the day hunting as well yeah so, they're,
2: they're equal um, they're, they're you know equally i
0: think I that's think equally at home either way but i would say that if that's the case then they obviously uh must possess that uh ability in their eyes that they can operate nocturnally, and uh, that certainly puts them at the advantage and us at a disadvantage, because we we like that.
2: You know, here's the thought, too. It made me think of the Bob Titmuss story, that uh, uh, when he was in the Bluff Creek area, not far from the Patterson film site, actually a few years before Patterson got the film, and he had to bed down there because he was afraid of getting injured, trying to go out with no light through the woods at night. And the creature showed up around one in the morning. Um, if, if they had really good night vision, I, I think it might've found him, but it didn't. It could smell that he was there, but couldn't find him and threw a tantrum. So it kind of, and here's an, you know another thought that goes with that is typically they it seemed to be more active right around dusk and dawn and, and not quite so much in the, in the middle of the night. So maybe, you know, maybe the night vision isn't a hundred percent developed.
0: Yeah. Well, that that's always a possibility. And I didn't, wasn't he, uh, didn't he like, uh, dig a depression and then cover himself up with, uh, all but his face.
2: Um, yeah. The, the stuff on the ground, yeah, forest yeah. floor. Sure.
0: And the thing that I found strange too about that story was that, um, he, he said he could hear the, I think he thought it was the same female, too, that was in the Patterson film. Am I that, correct that about was, that? That was based
2: um, on the footprints. Yeah, the footprints matched yeah. once Patterson got the film. It was the um, same creature.
0: That, that he heard her sniffing in the air, and then you will hear that sometimes that people discuss that you see them
2: It's a common uh, feature, sniffing. yeah.
0: Yeah, and and, and I'm going to tell you that the olfactory uh, sense in most primates is not a highly developed Feature. So again, I go back to the same old thing. I think that Bigfoot is an enigma. It has retained there are certain things that it has retained uh, that we wouldn't find in even modern day primates I, now. I'll, t- uh, I'll tell you something though fun. about
2: I'll tell you something though about the sense of smell. And Milo will he'll he knows this too. when we were in the military, when you you are going to go on a patrol, you kind of you have to prep yourself. You get your night vision, and and you want to have uh, kind of erase the smell on you and and you can smell the longer you're out you can your sense of smell becomes heightened you can smell people
0: well and i and i wouldn't necessarily deny that but it's not an advanced <clears throat> oh no feature in you know, in and and humans at all it's not something that we've uh, we've lost the ability to use it uh i, I would think that you know there there are tribes uh your primitive tribes that do use that because uh they've uh you know had to had to they've been forced to in hunting situations however it is not to the extent that it is in other mammals i mean to compare even uh primitive uh people's abilities to smell things as even compared to maybe the uh animal that they're hunting it's not even going to be on the same level because, first off, you've got an animal that's got all that pra- prognathism, which is the length of the muzzle. It <clears throat> uh, gives them, and that helps with and heightens the ability of smell. We don't lack. We lack that. We got a flat face. But the, and but there's a most primates. But there's a flip side uh, to that you know, too. <laughs> <face> too. <laughs> What's that? The, the flip. <clears throat> and I, and
2: I, when I when I took my my sight courses, they talked about this. Um, because everybody uses the example of a dog, you know, how how superior the sense of smell of dog is compared to a human. That's true, but they can only identify maybe a dozen cents where the human mind can identify 50,000.
0: Well, and you, you've got the, the problem there being is that, uh, yes, the identification, but the ability to necessarily go out in the woods and smell that is a, an entirely different issue. It's like we have we have certain features within our brain that allows us to. Uh, that's why when you smell a cologne, somebody can walk past you mm-hmm. and you can smell that cologne, and all of a sudden your your brain goes, "Oh, that's what my grandmother used to wear all the time." Right. Uh, or oh, you smell cookies, and all of a sudden you're seeing visions of uh, your mother cooking. Preparing, you know, chocolate chip cookies when you're a child. See, we have that a bit of ability, and I, that's not to say that other animals don't have that ability. They don't have any way to convey that idea to us.
2: I would think so, a Sasquatch might use some of that sense of smell to aid the other senses, like in a situation like that one. Let's say that, you know, it couldn't see as well, especially in a dark forested area at night. Um, and and people wear deodorant and things like that, and and smoked, so maybe it smelled cigarette smoke.
0: Uh, oh yeah, you know,
2: and knew that there was a human there somewhere.
0: Well, that's that's what I'm saying is they obviously have retained <clears throat> had some sort of re- primitive retention of uh, that olfactory sense, a smell, uh, you know, that we have lost, and I think that that, that ability is far greater than anything that we have. Uh, that's not to say that you can't, you know, people say, oh, well, you smell them? Well, that's not quite the same as, uh, scenting something, uh, because, you know, there's lots of things that, uh, your dog will, will smell and you're standing there going, I don't smell what the dog, and you can see the dog sniff in the air and you have no, no idea what he's smelling, but he is picking up the scent of something, you know? And, uh, so we, we lack like that ability, but I think that in some respects that, uh, from the stories that I've heard. I would think that Bigfoot uh, has retained that ability.
2: Yeah, I would think so. Tom, what do we got next?
3: Okay, so Annie wants to know, she says, uh, (laughs) there's a question from episode 172 that was, Will was talking about sending a photograph to Forrest. It was a photograph of footprint from a type four creatures That hunters had taken, so that would be the Minnesota Iceman. What Annie wants to know is whether the footprints were in line or staggered. Will says the footprints were human-like, and so I think where she's going with this is maybe this was, you know, some sort of a a proto—I don't know—I wouldn't say proto-human, but you know. Were were they staggered or were they?
2: You know, I don't know the the hunters. It was moose hunters who found the tracks way up in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they were they were very good tracks. They didn't say if they were in line, and they never responded when I asked. It was a kind of a one off thing. They sent me the information, and I never heard back from them, so we don't know.
3: Okay well that would be interesting that is a very observant question so thank you Annie um, okay so this one is this guy likes the weekly podcasts as well as the midweek edition so thank you um, okay so this one is I really do not know how so many evidence was written down at, at the time pioneers and trailblazers who overcame the ridicule and criticism? Okay, so um, this question is on big footprints. Why are they different from humans' footprints, for example? Uh, are they set at a different angle from their from ours? Do they have what is termed a long longitudinal arch? The longitudinal arch. Um, what what can you comment about why they're different? I, I have some pretty good ideas, but uh, they <laughs> well, superficially resemble. So <laughs> yeah, the, uh, su- well, <laughs> the
2: superficial. But you're talking. The first thing is is size. That's why, you know, back in in the late '50s, the the term Bigfoot was coined, and it was because um, Jerry Crew made the comment with a reporter. I think it was Andrew Gonzale was the guy who coined the term. Uh, they were looking at some prints around his equipment one of the times he found him and and crude made the comedy he says that fellow sure has big feet so the reporter picked that up as you know the line for the uh, for the story and it caught on so uh, you know human footprints compared to the Sasquatch tracks are, are much different in size much smaller you know the average Sasquatch track uh, the adults range anywhere from 13 to, um, on average up to 18, 19 inches long. There, there have been some that are bigger, but, um, typically that's the range for adults and, and most common it's 15 or 16 inches. That's kind of the, the most common length of a footprint human footprints are nothing like that, but, um, as far as the, uh, they're typically flat footed, no arch, although I have uh i have a set of prints that were you know cast by a deputy sheriff and a couple of those prints do appear to have an arch although um that could be just simply the way <clears throat> you know whatever the creature was walking over at the moment you know for those particular prints because some of the other tracks are flat they're not no arch at all um and forrest of course you could probably talk more on on footprints
0: yeah, um, Bigfoot <clears throat> completely lacks a longitudinal arch. We have those. They don't. Um, they exhibit the, the mid-torsal break uh, in the foot, which uh, I don't know if people understand what I'm saying when I say a mid-torsal break. That's kind of like uh, the fact that your hand can fold over, and if you've noticed in uh, primate's feet that they can fold them, feet over like they do their hands Um, and that that is a a physical adaptation to climbing Um, bigfoot seems to have retained that so that's why I say bigfoot probably do a lot more climbing than we probably think that they do Um, from what I understand on the the prints and I actually just recently watched a real interesting program uh, that Meldrum did on uh, tracks, and there seems to be uh, the, the denotation that there's padding on their feet as well. Um, and they have, their dermal ridges run lengthwise along the side of their foot. Ours do not do that. Ours actually run across uh, the foot. And uh, you don't see that in any of human or even non-human primates the, the ridges running an influence on the foot. Um, so they they exhibit um, a different features in their feet than what you know we have. Um, now the the one thing that I did notice that and of course not having a skeleton to look at, but the way it was explained is that it seems that the uh, actual large torsos in the foot, uh, which would be the ankle placement, it seems that that is set forward. You know, our, our heel is, you know, right. Our, our leg ties into our heel, right at the back of our foot. And theirs doesn't seem to do that. There seems to be a more uh, forward placement of uh, um, that leg bone in there, which I'm, thinking that that would be that way because of the heavier weight of the animal um, versus what uh, we have. You don't even see that in other, uh, you know, primates. So um, I don't, that's an an extremely unusual feature. So I'm I'm thinking that's probably an adaptation that they have uh, come along with because uh, of the size and their structure. You know for support but there seems to be padding on their feet as well and which that would make sense you know Very a pad just like a dog a cat, you know has that have to have it to get through the terrain that they get through um so
3: well let know. me ask you this this is for the two of you are there other primates footprints this is a, a further question that he has are there further are there other Footprints at different angles from humans uh, would be maybe similar to the Bigfoot.
0: No, not really, because um, primates—the um, primate foot—and this is all the way through to your great apes, your ring, and that, and I'm, when I say great apes, that includes your your gibbons, your uh, orangutans, your uh, chimps, your gorillas, all the way down to your uh, lower order. Uh, Simians and prosimians, they exhibit an opposable big toe, which is just like their feet look just like their hands. They've got that toe that sits is very offset and down lower, and it that is because they're climbing uh, animals and they climb, and you know some more than others, but uh, they still have retained that now. I will say this that <laughs> there have been some prints that have come in from um like the um up in Nepal on the Yeti and the the Yeti prints seem to have a more slight offset in the uh, footprints than what occurs in our uh Bigfoot and even some of the other sightings that you get across the world, like your uh, Yeti and uh, not Yeti, but the Yowies and um, um, Almas and everything. But the the Yeti seems to have a, a slightly more primitive feature in their foot than what we see in, um, in ours over here in North America and the rest of the world.
3: Well, is it possible that humans once had this before they became more modern and never needed to climb trees do you think it's possible we had that and we just kind of lost it over time without having the need to climb trees
0: well sure and i mean and they they are finding this all the time that you know australopithecus uh had a uh, had a foot just like ours uh, so we we're looking at an animal that's uh you know six million years ago that had uh, a foot just like ours uh this this new discovery of the uh, uh, orion uh uh ape they they have exhibit uh inline foot uh, as as well so there's there there is a the more the less arboreal and the more time they spend on the uh the ground you're going to develop a foot that is more suitable for running rather than climbing so i mean that's that's exactly where our foot is uh, suitable for is uh, walking long distances and climbing and of course along with that you're going to see a uh, pelvic uh you know a change in the pelvic structure i mean you look at all the apes and monkeys all are their pelvis is designed for quadrupedal walking not bipedal. I mean, yes, they can get up and walk bipedally, but not for long distances. So, by virtue of that fact, Bigfoot is going to have to have a a, a femur head and a, um, a pelvic structure very similar to a human's. And like I always say, uh, Bigfoot babies got back because they got to have a butt. And if you notice, in all primates other than man, they don't have butt. And you've got to have that big glute back there to, uh, for those uh, muscles to provide you that ability to do a lot of walking.
3: Okay, very interesting. Okay, next question is, do you have an idea what percent of Bigfoot calories come from meat versus plant material?
2: Well, it would have to be the majority would come from meat. Because it takes a lot of protein to drive a large brain.
3: Okay, so do you think they're primarily meat eaters with some plants during appropriate seasons, or more like a bear, which is mainly vegetarian with opportunistic hunting of meat?
2: Well, a bear'll eat just about anything, so it's not really a vegetarian. I mean, they they'll eat a great deal of meat. They'll eat whatever they can get a hold of. But a sasquatch. Um, And we know this from, you know, of course, witness, witness reports, them killing animals and hunters having deer taken from them. But, um, you think about what's out there, you know, there isn't enough vegetable material to eat year round, especially in the Pacific Northwest, you know, the leaves and everything are off the trees. And a lot of these leafy type plants are dead for the winter. You know, they'd starve to death if they were vegetarian. So, um, needing to drive that large brain and, and to fuel it and the availability of different kinds of food. There's, there's more, uh, you know, animals around to eat than there is plants.
3: Okay. So this goes into the, uh, he's got some other questions here. He says, are they primarily big animal hunters? You know, deer and moose or more like small animals like rodents, rabbits, etc." and do you have any idea if they lose weight during the winter months annually and has anybody noted that a bigfoot sighted in the winter often appears skinny uh you know like starving i i know I people We know the answer
2: i know people that have seen them in the springtime and they and sometimes they look emaciated but other times not so it really depends i suppose on the individuals and on how well they are or how good they are at you know, feeding themselves. Maybe some that are emaciated in the spring. Aren't very good hunters, you know, and just didn't do very well through the winter while other ones that are, you know, not phased by it or have become very good at what they do.
3: Well, when you think about the story from union Creek, they were very tall. They're very lean. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a group of them and it was like, aha. Uh-huh. We're going to supplement our diet here and now.
2: <laughs> I don't think that was supplement. I think that was a primary. That wasn't a supplement.
3: Primary diet, absolutely. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be
1: like opportunistic, to, to or you know? They come across it instead of like,
2: "Ooh, that's why I look." At it. Oh, we're not. We're not hearing you, Milo. Your is your volume cut out, Milo? I think, he asked, we lost them. I think he asked if they were, op- they were opportunistic. But yeah, that's absolutely. Let me see if I can find him. Oh, no, he's here.
3: All right. Last part of this question, and hopefully we can get Milo back. Yeah, let me Um him. What do you think of the stories about Sasquatch speaking with Indians? And that would be, basically you say talking with anybody but do you think they do they know the Indian words or some English words
2: uh, that's a good question it's an unknown they may recognize some things if it's if it's been said often enough I suppose you know depending on the situation but
3: yeah we had Gerald on a while back and he talked about there was a mimicking he wasn't there but his former boss the police chief and somebody else were out in the woods and they kept hearing gerald talking and he was nowhere around
2: so well mimicking mimicking and knowing words are two different things though
3: right exactly
2: that's completely different um you know it's really tough to say i mean um I don't know. I don't really, really have to answer that. Um,
0: I don't know. Well, I think it would be just like any animals that, I mean, you know, you, you say a word around, you know, like a cat or a dog even enough that they'll learn to recognize what that word means. Um, gosh, I'm probably going to offend a lot of people out there that think uh, that Bigfoot are uh, next to human, but uh, um, I don't, I don't, I just don't see Bigfoot sitting down and having conversations with anybody.
2: No, Um, I don't either.
0: But uh, I could be wrong.
2: And for for them to understand, okay, I guess we're using a blanket term here. If we're talking about all Sasquatches out there, for them to understand words, they would have to be taught languages, and it would have to be across, you know, the species.
0: Well, exactly, and even even the apes that have learned languages. There have been chimpanzees that have learned to communicate with uh, computers, uh, but they learn. They are taught what the symbols mean, and it's like Coco that learned the American Sign Language. Uh, she had to be taught what those words mean. She didn't just come with a, a you know full blown knowledge of them. Right now, they and- they will. They will you know people that have worked out in the wild with uh, uh feral chimps, feral apes uh, feral gorillas on any level will say that you know all of them have hand signals and certain sounds that they make that has a meaning to the that particular group and um so they obviously have means of communication amongst themselves, but being able to, I, I haven't seen any chimpanzees or gorillas sitting down and having conversations with humans without having been taught how to communicate
1: with humans. Yeah. The
2: signals that we're one, I'll oh, go ahead. We're
1: taught.
2: Yeah. The, the signals that one group,
1: we're hmm? the same thing. I mean, if, if I think if we were set alone by ourselves, we wouldn't know how to talk.
0: No.
2: No in yeah. fact are there aren't there cases of of feral people that had a really difficult time being taught how to speak and I think they, there were a couple of cases where they couldn't be taught how to speak
0: <clears throat> yes they've they they've had uh several instances throughout uh, history where uh, kids have actually been raised in the wild um, oftentimes by other species of animals that is not unheard of but uh they don't aren't able to to communicate because they those formative years that you have and need to have when you're young to learn all the the language it makes it extremely difficult uh, for them uh, you know pick up a language and even learn how to communicate in later years
2: yeah those neural pathways wouldn't have developed and that's very important to understand too if if that part of your brain, those neural pathways aren't developed through those experiences, in other words, when you learn how to read and, and speak and things like that, you know, we learn to do those things <clears throat> over and over and over. It's repetitive. Um, so that's how the, that's how those pathways are built. Uh, so if you don't have that, you're not going to develop those neural pathways.
3: You know, exactly. just quick comment on that. There's a, uh, psychologists that wrote a book on that about how you know the dependent over dependence on uh we're not going to use anybody's search engine name it starts with g but an over dependence <laughs> on rapid answers through the internet or on your phone actually causes those neural pathways to atrophy and when you have to struggle and work hard to memorize and and you know, pick up new concepts. You're building new neural pathways, but that typically comes from you know reading books and and not getting those instant answers. Right. Well,
0: if and this is a prime example, uh, you look at kids nowadays and their ability to use language. I'm absolutely, I'm mortified because you have kids that cannot communicate, they cannot write they want to do everything phonetically like they do on their, uh, you know, phones and their computers. And, but for them to sit down and write, I mean, some of the greatest communications throughout history have been letters and uh, by human beings, just letters. And so I I find it really abhorrent the way uh, kids are today. And, and it's, Maybe they should have had a mother like mine. I was a latch, latchkey kid, and I, most people probably don't even know what that is. But my mother, uh, when I came home from school, I literally locked myself in the house until she got home. And I was always one of, the, of these kids that was who, what, when, where, why, and I still am to a certain degree, even though I'm not a child anymore. Um, and my mother one time told me, I bought you a set of uh, encyclopedias. Britannica's go look it up so you know what I did I did and I would come home every afternoon and read the freaking encyclopedia and um you know to this day I'm great to take to a trivial pursuit game but uh, I have a, a fountain of useless knowledge in my brain but you know what there's a lot <laughs> of kids now <nowadays, laughs> there's a lot of kids nowadays that should have a fountain of useless knowledge in their brains and uh, I think that that they're in is uh, uh, don't even get me started talking about the educational system oh it's it's tragic well, anyway. <laughs> it's tragic
2: you see videos on youtube where people go out and, and they'll ask people simple questions I think it started from the tonight show oh, yeah. doing it or one of those one of those shows oh yeah and uh, yeah jay leno used to do it
3: it's painful and
2: it is because people it just makes you think people are just stupid
1: <laughs> you know but I, I, they're not yeah I, they I don't just, know things
0: i i I sat and watched uh, Jesse Waters do one last night, and I was just like, oh, my God, are people really still that st- stupid? And I was like, uh, that's a rhetorical question, okay? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it's because they don't, they don't uh, go learn things like we used to. It's, everything is uh, it's on their phone. or And, and what gets me to is not Yeah, it's there's – It's not taught anymore. Right, yeah. And there's um,
1: – cursive isn't taught anymore. right. You know, I mean, my wife is a parrot teacher in, in our school district and the stuff that they, if the kid doesn't want to do it, they don't have to do it. And and nothing is, you know, that
3: actually didn't work out so well when I was in school as a kid. (laughs) It it didn't matter if you wanted to do it or not. And and
2: you know, it's bad. Even, even some like, you know, the big news organizations, newspapers and things don't edit articles anymore you, you, sometimes i look at something and think yeah, geez know. did a foreigner write this it's it's awful
0: <laughs> yeah, like, yeah
2: but that's well that's, I've, yeah. I've watched kids but that's off pass track math
3: bit. classes with yeah. you know like doing calculus with copy and paste okay so. i'm like oh no 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 you don't learn right. calculus that way no you don't learn so, any, any kind of math that way so getting back to bigfoot <laughs> <laughs> Back to Bigfoot, yeah. We're going to have to edit some of this ads. No,
2: no, we'll, we'll leave it in. There. Let's, so let's go on to the next question, Tom.
3: Okay. So I noticed a famous Patty picture in the Bigfoot females, at least, have one prominent or have prominent visible breasts. Mm-hmm. I'm under the impression that this is unusual in that other primates don't have prominent breasts and it's. Uh, a sexually selected signal only in humans. Okay, so I was wondering, do all big fit females have notice, noticeable breasts, or is it only the type ones? Well,
2: here's, what, do you here's think? what I, and I think, again, you can't put make a generalization about that one. You know, that one could have been nursing, for all we know. Because I've had other witnesses tell me they've seen females, but the breasts apparently had no milk in them which I think is what you would expect in the wild.
0: Yeah. I'm going to jump in here. Um, All primates will have noticeable. Yes. Easy for me to say noticeable breasts. If they are nursing. Now, when they're not nursing, you may have older females that have had, uh, you know, that have been nursing for a while and they will have breasts. They will be, you know, Basically, limp. They won't be full, but they'll have breasts, and you'll see, uh, you know, enlarged nipples on them because they've been nursing, uh, you know, infants throughout their years. Um, but I, that's what I, I totally agree with you that I think Patty was a nursing female because she had quite enlarged mammary mm-hmm. glands. So
2: people jumped um, against, I'm
0: going to say this. Yeah, people yeah. jumped to conclusions. Yeah,
2: people jumped to conclusions in the past that there was a juvenile there. It, there was no sign of one there, but there must have been one, at least in the in the general area somewhere.
1: Because... Yeah. Go ahead, Milo. Oh, no, it's just... Well, the, you know, she was a female. We're talking about the past film, right? right? Yeah. I would assume so. It would have to be out there and where she's, like, scoping to make sure it's safe. And it's just... Being hidden or you know watching, but I I had a, a question about you know when primates when they have their do do they have like a reoccurring nursery where they do it all the time or is it have I might say that no. uh you know do they always go back to the same place to have their 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 births and stuff like that. No, no, it's kind of yeah. like wherever they are that's it
0: that's that's usually the way it is that that's the way <laughs> well, them. it's like you know wherever wherever they are, you know, like chimps will usually uh you know the i think I've said this before that the female chimps will usually go off into the the forest to uh have their babies um and and that's I think due to the the um problems with the male chimps and the things that they do. Uh, you don't have that issue with the, the gorillas. Gorillas uh, don't uh, attack and eat their and consume their young. Uh, neither do macaques or and I, I've actually never seen it in, in any other ape uh, uh, except the baboons. The baboons are terrible about it. But if they can grab a an infant, they will eat them. But uh, usually, uh, they, it's just like once the lymph pains uh, uh, set in, that's that's pretty much, you know, they'll either stay in that area or they'll go to a comfortable place that they can have, have the infant. And a lot of times it'll be in the tree. And I think it has to do with the fact that just gravity helps them out there. You know, they can sit in the tree and, and actually it's very unique the way they can reach around and pull that infant. And that infant is literally pulled up between their legs immediately and they start cleaning it and they won't even pass the afterbirth yet and uh, they'll start cleaning that infant and uh, stimulating it to try to get it to, uh, you know, and position it so that the, it'll start nursing.
2: I have a comment, too. If, if a Sasquatch were using the same area to birth, it would draw predators.
1: Okay. Yes. That's, uh, that's what I was trying to get to. is Because everything's, like, seasonal, right? I mean, for, like, or is that just no, what we not is that training. a myth is that like every spring everybody has a baby kind of thing not with these creatures is that I, no because okay, i'm looking we'll into promise is just
0: like us <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh god that shows how good of an outdoorsman i am <laughs>
3: Well, you know, I've got a follow-up question, and I've heard this before, and that is do primates of any kind, and, and actually it was in regards to Bigfoot, but in the primate world, are there, is there any such thing as nurseries where you will have kind of they, they gather together all the, the infants and the females will just sort of act as nursemaids and, you know, keep an eye on them and that sort of thing? Or do they stay strictly within their own family group and their you know their their mother for example
0: well you'll see with uh, apes and monkeys that those babies when they're they're born they immediately attach to the the female and um they what i call the five point attachment it's <laughs> lips on the nipple and then all four little legs Uh, attached to the mom and boy I tell you what they can wrap those fingers in that mom's hair and uh, it's like you can't you know it takes a a a very strong pull to get them away because you'll see other uh, other females that decide oh I want to look at your kid and then try to pull them off the mom and it's absolutely uh you know almost an impossibility to do that um and how did the other moms
3: react to that when another female comes up tries to take their baby
0: well, they don't like it most of the time, and it, it, now if it's a familiar, familiar female, because they they run in uh, you know familial groups, uh, you'll have a, 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 a you know a grandam, and then she's got her daughters, and then you may have uh, even granddaughters uh, running in uh, groups, and they they form familial groups, and uh, so. You know, grandmama comes up and wants to look at the baby. You know, uh, the daughter's not going to be so uh, resilient to the, I mean, resistant to the the grandmother looking at the baby. Uh, And there have even been instances where if something has happened to the daughter that she might have died in childbirth, that that grandmother or even a sister will come over there and take over the the duties if they have milk and they will care for that infant and raise it um you know obviously some primates show empathy for their uh you know children and grandchildren than even humans do but um the um the point is that they will either ride on their mom's chest or they will ride on their mom's back like they're riding a horse and some of them will sit up there straight up there like like, yeah I like this you know I'm riding on mom and they will do that sometimes up till they're six or seven months old and even sometimes older you know if mom will let them (coughs) Um, but once they get out you will see and I don't want to say this is like a nursery situation but you will have uh, the mother's just sitting around I call the Buddha stands where they're just all sitting there like you know, big fat mamas uh, sitting there watching the kids play and you'll have all these little kids out there in various stages of ages and they're all running around uh, playing. Now, if somebody gets out of hand and starts picking on a little one that they shouldn't be, yeah, mom will step up and usually, you know, uh, slap that one around a little bit. But uh, mostly what they're watching out for is an attack by a male and, um, you know, the so they're all going to arms. pitch
3: in, and that's going to be a uh, kind of a shared responsibility. It sounds like.
0: Yeah, it's, it's You'll see a bunch of them sitting around. You don't you don't have just one sitting there. You know, watching the whole group. You'll have three or four mamas sitting around looking at them, and then the. Uh, uh, but they're usually more, more looking for a male, big male to come along and maybe harm those babies versus a predator.
3: So it is kind of a kind of almost like a, like a nursery situation. All right. We have, I think we've got time for one last very quick question. And this one is, uh, my question is, Ron wants to know, uh, regarding the Sasquatch growls of the four different types, are the vocalizations identical, similar, or is there a way to differentiate between the growls? Hey, that's a type four over there and that's a type two. We don't really know. Well, we need to find there's, out. There's
2: not enough information. <laughs> there's not enough information um, to make in, any kind of determination like that.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think when somebody hears a growl, they're they usually uh, keyed. You're,
2: and... you're not thinking about what type it is,
3: <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: I've, I've heard a growl up close. I thought I'm leaving. That's all I thought. Yes, like, getting I do. <laughs>
0: Oh, my gosh. I just remember, oh, my gosh, uh, her sitting in that that truck and then uh, that awful, god-awful growl.
2: Oh. Well, we're just about out of time. In fact, we are out of time. Well, thanks, everyone. Milo, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I'm not sure if he's got his audio on. How about you, Forrest? Any final thoughts?
0: I don't think so. We had some really good questions this time.
2: Milo. I'm on. Milo. Oh, I mean, you we, always, we always have
0: good questions, yeah, but I, I mean, they did have some really, uh, really, uh, you know, thought-provoking questions this time. So what I'm at. Go ahead, Milo.
1: If I had to choose a weapon and round, what would I have? To, what would I take?
2: Something big. Well,
1: <laughs> big. Oh, I know that part. Are, are we talking high powered rifle versus a shotgun or <laughs> well, what? An elephant gun. Uh, yeah, a, <laughs> yeah, a shotgun
2: exactly. gives you knockdown power, but it doesn't do much else. Um, I mean, unless you shoot one in the eye, you know, with a slug.
1: Yeah, okay. Tom, how about <laughs>
3: you? All right. So I'm going to say excellent questions. Keep them coming. And again, there's no such thing as a bad question. We love them all, they keep the topic alive and speaking of staying alive let's feed the algorithm and call it a day
2: that's right we can certainly use your likes and subscribe to the channel folks and uh stay tuned for the next show in a couple days in bigfoot history chuska mountains arizona about 1967 Mrs. C. A. Cheesman, Farmington, New Mexico, wrote to me that a Navajo family having a picnic saw an animal looking like a gorilla standing about 200 feet away watching them. It was on its hind legs and parted the underbrush with its hands. When they noticed it, it turned and walked off. Yeah.
4: Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning and is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The name of this story, Two Tales of the Yeho. Curious legend of the Kentucky Mountains, four or five versions of this curious and strange legend, come into my collection over a period of about six years, 1948 to 1954. From an isolated region of the Kentucky Mountains. At first, I did not know what to make of it, but having also collected a few versions of The Bear's Son, story minus the half bear, half man introduction, I guessed that this was the introduction now broken away and told separately. It now appears to be a distinct legend, since Dr. Archer Taylor refers me to the long search for American versions by Mr. Rudolph Atrachi. And now that I reflect on this item, I realize that and now that I reflect on this item, I realize that it is not unique to Kentucky mountain folklore. During my youth in these mountains, it was not unusual to hear a rumor of some half-wild man, naked and hairy, being found in the woods, living close to animal state. This kind of Romulus-Remus legend seems to stick in the minds of the folk, but how this particular legend made its way into eastern Kentucky is a mystery to me. The following version was taken down in pencil in 1950 from the lips of Lee Maggard, who lived in a small cabin on the south slope of the Pine Mountain Range, near the small lumber town of Putney, Harlan County, Kentucky. He had heard it on Maggard's Branch, Leslie County, Kentucky. The Yeho Once there was man out hunting. He got lost, and after a while he began to get hungry. He came to a big hole in the ground, and he thought he would venture down into it. He went down in there, and he found that the old Yeho lived in there. There was deer meat hanging up, and other food piled around the walls. The man was afraid at first, but Yeho didn't bother him, and he went toward that meat to get him some. The Yeho walked over and looked at the knife and said, Yeho, Yeho, a time or two. He cut it off a piece of the meat, and he started eating it. Well, the man stepped over to the middle of the pit, AND TOOK OUT HIS FLINT AND BUILT HIM UP A FIRE. AND THE YEHO WATCHED HIM AND LOOKED AT THE FIRE AND AT THE FLINT AND SAID, YEHO, YEHO, AGAIN. THE MAN PUT HIS MEAT ON A STICK AND BRILED HIM A NICE PIECE AND STARTED EATING IT. THE YEHO WATCHED HIM AND ACTED LIKE HE WANTED A PIECE. THE MAN CUT IT OFF A PIECE OF THE BRILED MEAT AND REACHED IT OVER and the yeho commenced to eatin it up and smackin its lips and sayin "yeho yeho" well the man lived there with it a long time and they got along all right after so long there was a youngin' born to him and it was half man and half yeho and the yeho took such a liking to the man it wouldn't let him leave he got to wantin' to get away and go back home one day he slipped off and the yeho followed him and made him go back. Went on that way for a good while, but he picked him a good time and slipped away. This time he got to the shore where there was a ship ready to sail. He got on the ship, and he looked and he saw the yeho coming with a youngun. It screamed and hollered for him to come back, and when it saw he wasn't going to come, why it just tore the baby in two and held it out one half to him and said yeho yeho he sailed on off and left it standing there the version that dr taylor refers to in my book south from hell for certain is called the origin of man another version was given to me by this teller's grandson it has the same title and contents except that the yeho has six children, and tears them all in two and throws them after the embarked man. Another text, similar to the one given above, was accidentally erased from my tapes. The following text was recorded from Joe Couch, Appalachia, Virginia, in 1954. He had heard it from his people while he lived in Perry County, Kentucky. THE HAIRY WOMAN one time I was prowlin in the wilderness, wandering about, kindly got lost, and so weak and hungry I couldn't go when it began to get cool. I found a big cave and crawled back in there to get warm, crawled back in and come upon a leaf bed, and I dozed off to sleep. I heard an awful racket coming into that cave, and something come in and crawled right over me and laid down like a big old bear. It was a hairy thing, and when it laid down, it went chomp, chomp, a-chawin' on something. I thought to myself, well, I'll see what it is, and find out what it's eatin'. I reached over, and a hairy-like woman was there, eating chestnuts. Had about a half a bushel there. I got me a big handful of them, and went to chewin' on them, too. Well, in a few minutes she handed me over another big handful, and I eat chestnuts until I was kindly full and wasn't hungry any more. Directly she got up and took off and out of sight. Well, I stayed on there till next morning, and she come in with a young deer, brought it in, and with her big long fingernails she ripped its hide and skinned it, and then she sliced the good lean meat and handed me a bite to eat. I kindly slipped it behind me, afraid to eat it raw and afraid not to eat it, being she'd give it to me. She'd cut off big pieces of deer meat and eat it raw. Well, I laid back, and the other pieces she give me over as she'd eaten hers, she was going to see that I didn't starve. When she got gone again, I built up a little fire and briled my meat. After being hungry for two or three days, it was good cooked, yes, buddy. She come in while I had a fire. She come in while I had my fire built briling my meat, and she run right into that fire. She couldn't understand because it kindly burnt her a little. She jumped back and looked at me like she was gonna run through me. I said oh. I'm going to get in trouble now. Well, it was cold and bad out, so I just stayed another night with her. She was a woman, but was right hairy all over. After several days, I learned her how to brile meat, and that fire would burn her. She got shy at the fire, and got so she liked briled meat and wouldn't eat it raw anymore. We went on through the winter that way. "'She would go out and carrying deer and bear. "'So I lived there about two years, "'and when we had a little kid, "'one side of it was hairy and the other side was slick. "'I took a notion I'd leave there and go back home. "'I began to build me a boat to go away across the lake in. "'One time after I had left, "'I took a notion I'd slip back and see what she was doing.' I went out to the edge of the cliff and looked down into the mountain and it looked like two or three dozen of hairy people coming up the hill. They were all pressing her and she would push them back. They wanted to come on up and come in. I was scared to death, afraid they was going to kill me. She made them go back and wouldn't let them come up and interfere. Well, I took a notion to leave one day when my boat was ready. I told her one day I was going to leave. She followed me down to my boat and watched me get ready to go away. She was crying, wanting me to stay. I said, No, I'm tired of the jungles. I'm going back to civilization again, going back. When she knowed she wasn't going to keep me there, she just grabbed the little un and tore it right open with her nails, throwed me the hairy part, and she kept the slick side. That's the end of that story. This is the end of the story. Thank you for listening.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at William Jevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J E V N I N G, at yahoo.com. All communication
1: is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open now.